Well, what a gut punch last night was for Toronto sports fans. Mere hours after the Toronto Maple Leafs lost yet another Game 7 to the Boston Bruins, Toronto FC lost the CONCACAF Champions League final on penalties to Chivas Guadalajara. Tuning into any Toronto sports talk show this morning was basically like watching a Shakespeare play. Um, but we'll try to be a little less tragic on this week's edition of the Footy Talks podcast as we break down the game and what it means for the club going forward. Also ahead on the show, at least it was a good week for another group of Reds as Liverpool continued their dominance in the Champions League and the end of an era at Arsenal Football Club. Joining me this week is Armin Badakian of The Score. Armin, uh, you've had at least a little bit of time now to process what was yet another heartbreaking final loss for Toronto FC. Um, what's your prevailing feeling now that you've had some time to sleep on it? Loss? Uh, I swear it was a uh, 2-1 victory. <laughs> Yeah, aggregate. Uh, yeah, that aggregate. I mean, uh, going down to Mexico and actually managing to pull off the 2-1 win was huge for Toronto FC, and then losing on penalties is just the worst way. At that point, it's a coin flip. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. It's hard to really feel even heartbroken about it because it's almost like it. it it's almost like the game should have just been a draw, and it's just like one team is holding onto the trophy and the other one doesn't. You know, I'm super proud of Toronto FC. Super proud of the effort. Just to go down there and actually like compete and win was a huge thing for them. And it's just really unfortunate that it ended the way it did. I, I read a whole bunch of things about how like Michael Bradley should be blamed for the missed penalty and this and that. It's nonsense. It's 100% nonsense. I mean, a penalty shootout, like I said, it's, it's a lottery at that point. So kudos to the Reds for going down there and actually getting the result. And in any other circumstance, maybe that would have been enough to force extra time and then who knows at that point. But uh, yeah, definitely there's nothing to be ashamed of at all. Yeah, people just seem to want to blame Michael Bradley, it seems at this point, especially um, south of the border. But uh, speaking of Michael Bradley, I mean, he was front and center of what was a very interesting Toronto FC formation. Um, they lined up, obviously, to, to start the game without any center backs as Drew Moore was ruled out just for kickoff. Zavaleta, Mavinga, Hagland, um, Justin Morrow, and, and Jason Hernandez, they were all ruled out. They weren't available to start. So um, no center backs. What did you make of that formation when uh, it got tweeted out? It got tweeted out first by Mexican media, and everyone was like, okay, maybe they got it wrong. But then Toronto FC confirmed it, and um, that right from the start, it was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's an impossible circumstance to manage if you're Greg Vanny at that point. If you're if you're putting your defensive midfielder in, in the back line, you've basically resigned yourself to the fact that there's no alternate solution available. Uh, Michael Bradley, I think, stepped up in a huge way. Um, it was interesting watching him play center back because he still sort of had that like heat-seeking missile mentality where he was chasing <laughs> down plays, where it's, whereas a player like Drew Moore might have stuck around and positioned himself well, but he did a good job. Um, that's, I think, the biggest shame of this whole tournament, or at least the final stage of it, is that we couldn't see a full-strength Toronto FC um, with the full starting 11 take on Chivas, you know? That's sort of the impression that I was left with, is it's just a shame, really. Because, I mean, the Toronto FC team that we watched at the end of 2017, the one that had Justin Morrow um, like running down that left flank, scoring goals, racking up assists, and then you had Chris Mavinga in the back line... You had Victor Vasquez pulling the strings in midfield and uh, supported by that tandem of Bradley and Delgado or Bradley Osario. I mean, it was it was beautiful. They were playing really beautiful, effective attacking football. Um, and we were sort of robbed of that experience uh, 
the fact that Toronto FC managed to actually get to the final and managed to beat Tigres and Club America to do that, to get there, with such like shorthanded injury plague issues throughout is astounding to me. I mean, that's a huge credit to their depth. That's for that's for sure. But um, it's I, like I don't know. I feel like if it was a circumstance where we had the full strength starting lineup, I don't see the result going this way. I mean, I, I don't see how Toronto FC doesn't win this final. I mean, Chivas even at their own home stadium didn't put up too much of a fight. Uh, certainly not on the goal scoring sheet. So. Uh, it's just a shame. That's that's really all I can say about it. It's a shame, but Bradley stepped up in a big way, and we made do with what we had. Yeah, and what she said is as or one thing that makes it even more of a shame is that this really was a great performance from Toronto FC, especially considering um, what they had to deal with on the injury front and uh, another difficult trip down to Mexico. I mean. Josie Altidore scores, Sebastian Javinko scores. Um, this on this day, I mean, it could have gone Toronto FC's way very easily, and uh, that just makes it almost more difficult to swallow that they were so good in that game, um, but ultimately couldn't get the results on penalties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, guys like Ashton Morgan, Jonathan Osario, they all stepped up in a big way. I mean, that back line was comprised of uh, Auro and. Gregory Vanderveel playing on both of the right-hand sides, and then Bradley and Morgan, like, that's the most makeshift possible backline I think you can put <laughs> together for TFC. And they, they held relatively firm. I mean, they ate another early goal, which was not great, but to be honest, what could really the expectation be for such a, a, a lineup like that anyways, right? So, I mean, it's, it's just tough. It's tough. It's a tough situation for Greg Vanny to manage, and uh, the fact that they pulled it off even if it was just falling short of the actual trophy, is a huge testament to the quality of the, of the entire roster. What did you make of his, uh, Greg Vanny, that is his in-game substitutions? Because I found them kind of interesting. I mean, uh, Jordan Hamilton getting on, who's a player who we haven't seen all that much, especially um, with Tosaint Ricketts on the bench. Uh, Hamilton comes in over him in the 57th minute for Nicholas Hassler, who I thought was fantastic. And I was kind of surprised at that swap. And then obviously Vasquez and Altidore have to come off injured for uh, Jay Chapman, who's another guy who hasn't played all that much. And Edgar Akeche, who's a guy who's still finding his feeling so are still finding his uh his spot on this roster so uh, what did you make of Toronto FC and uh the changes they made obviously as we said they didn't have that much of a choice but they were still uh the timing at least it kind of intriguing yeah absolutely I mean I think the first change was the only one that I saw a sort of suspect I thought Hassler was doing a really good job at, at bringing balance to Toronto FC's sort of like the makeshift makeshift shape so taking him off and putting on Jordan Hamilton, I think, upset that balance a little bit. It took Jovinko away from what he was kind of a position that he was starting to exploit. And um, I think the other two changes were fine. I didn't have an issue with Vanny's tactical changes. I mean, I think bringing on a Akeche was probably with the mind of a, of a penalty shootout situation. Um, the initial report was that Akeche is quite adept at taking set pieces and free kicks and that sort of thing. So... I think that might have played a factor into it. Also, I'm not sure what Toe St. Ricketts' status was. Uh, he's been battling injuries on and off for the last few weeks, so perhaps he wasn't also ready to play. Um, in any case, I thought the the team that came in did fine. I thought Jay Chapman was good. I thought Jordan Hamilton put in a lot of physical effort and, and, and work, which was great. Um, and like I said, I mean, in any other circumstance, that lineup, that performance, that's enough to force extra time, and then at, at that point you don't know. You don't know what happens. But the fact that it went to penalties at that point, it becomes a matter of fate. So it doesn't really matter who you have on the field at that moment. 
I mean, obviously you can say if Altidore was healthy, he would have probably taken a penalty. But then again, like the best players in the world miss penalties too. It's it's impossible to have any sort of assurance in that situation. So I thought the only change that I was kind of questioning was the Hassler one. But even then, I mean, it was fine. And if you want to pick your your Stefan Fry palming the ball out moment, um, unfortunately, Marky Delgado, who I feel has had a great tournament and been such an important engine to Toronto FC in terms of uh, the transition between attack and defense, uh, missing that chance. Um, you know, how heartbreaking is that, that, you know, a young player, it was, it was on his foot, but he that's the moment, I think, that a lot of Toronto FC fans will remember that and, of course, uh, the final penalty uh, being skied by Michael Bradley. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shoulda, coulda, woulda moments that happen, especially over the course of two legs. I mean, you can say that, all right, if Delgado missed that, you can blame it on that, but you can also say, like, well, we might not have even needed it if Alex Bono made the save in the first leg or if, you know, there's a million like circumstances where you look back. Obviously, the timing of that miss made it so much more worse because it was like the 91st, 92nd minute. But, uh, I mean, it happens. that you, you can't do anything more than brush it off and Delgado buried his penalty really well within a couple minutes. So, um, I don't. I don't think that he deserves to be treated too harshly for it at all. To be honest, I thought Delgado has been a huge part of the actual getting to this stage. So when I saw that miss, um, I sort of didn't react. I, I didn't take it the same way that I saw a lot of the social media reaction, which was, "Oh my God, that was a miss." I took it more as like this is one of the several small missed opportunities or issues or uh, circumstances that were out of our control that have led up to this moment ending in penalty shootouts. Um, It's unfortunate, but I don't think that it's something that he should really dwell on. Yeah, people always want to look at scapegoats uh, after a loss like this, but I'd agree. I don't think there's really one specific player or um, even a specific moment you can pin on this. It was just almost an unfortunate uh, series of events, and one of those unfortunate events is the fact that this game didn't even have that extra time as you mentioned earlier uh CONCACAF rules and there's been a couple of weird ones I know obviously the yellow card accumulation rule has uh been one that's definitely played a factor in this tournament and um this is another one that is just puzzling I mean Honestly, you could say Toronto FC. Perhaps they were they were looking pretty tired. Maybe they don't win it in extra time. But this is a game that deserved extra time, and it's so much better to have a game end, um, you know, with all of the players on the field versus just it, it's not quite a coin flip, but it basically is in the, in the penalty kicks. Man, the 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 real I think final should have been a neutral venue and a one legged affair. The fact that it's played over two legs at all is ridiculous. This should have just been played in, like, Los Angeles or something. Um, and the fact that it has to be two legs in a final, I think, took the took the entire wind out of it. I went down to the final, uh, the first leg in B- at BMO Field. It didn't feel like a final. It felt like a game against a Mexican team. I mean, it was still a pretty spirited affair, but it did not have that air of excitement the way that the MLS Cup did. And I think the fact that it's a two-legged final sort of takes away from that. I mean... It takes away the tension, it takes away the nervousness, it takes away the urgency, and uh, I think in the future, CONCACAF should really consider making the final a one-legged neutral venue, or even give it to the advantage, like whichever team had the better record leading up to it. Um, the way that it is right now, I, I think it's a poor format. It lends itself to a little bit of complacency, a little bit of uh, trepidation. I think um, the first leg becomes a 
sort of feeling each other out and the second leg ends up being the one where it's like, all right, now we know what we have to do. And in the end of the day, like Toronto FC, yeah, if they were tired, it's because of the extra additional game that they didn't need. Not to mention the fact that it's completely reduced Toronto's ability to compete in their regular league uh, play as well. So I think the format as it is right now is something that should be looked at. It's, it's not conducive to... Uh, a very healthy fan expectation or a very healthy experience for them and it's it's not good for the players either so yeah that's that's my take on it yeah and it makes it easier to promote north of the border as well if you don't have to explain aggregate and you don't have to explain all yeah, these exactly. soccer type terms um it's just a one game final and that's what that's what even casual soccer fans can understand i think um a lot of people and i've seen this across social media don't necessarily um get the concacaf champions league as much because of this because they know the North American format more. And if you had that one game final, then maybe TSN can allocate more resources to it. I know there was obviously a lot else going on last night in the Toronto sports world, but, um, you know, over two games, it becomes harder to to put together a package um, for that kind of competition. Um, but but looking back at this now, what's the legacy of this of this competition for Toronto FC? I mean, obviously they come up short in the end, and their ultimate goal was to win the Concacaf Champions League. But you have to think that just getting there and just getting to that final and all the experience that comes out of this will be huge for this club. I think this whole tournament has been a, a reference point, a reference point, and it has been for its entire the entirety of its existence. Uh, this tournament sort of acts as the reference between MLS and Liga MX. And so the way that Major League Soccer outfits contend this tournament and perform in this tournament has always been this sort of measure because Liga MX has been so utterly dominant. I think the fact that Toronto FC made it all the way to the final and did so not by being fortuitously drawn against the likes of Seattle or New York, but actually had to take on the best of Mexico to get there. Um, And then in the final actually ended up going toe-to-toe with Chivas, losing only on penalties after pulling in a 3-3 overall draw. That is the legacy of, I think, the first MLS club to really say, hey, we're here and we're able to compete with you. This history of dominance is over. And while you may have the leg on us again this year, you might be like celebrating the trophy again this year, just know that Toronto FC is the front of a pack of MLS teams that are slowly but surely improving. And I think in the next, I think for sure in the next five years we'll have an MLS team uh, win this tournament. If it's not Toronto next season, for example, um, that's the legacy. I think Toronto is the first team that really I think showed Liga MX that we are a league that has to be respected and that we cannot be laughed at anymore. And if you do treat us with arrogance and you laugh at the at the quality of our league or of our players, we have no problem putting you in your place. That's I think something that Greg Vanny's team can be very proud of. And there were a lot of players who stepped up for Toronto FC. Evidently, we mentioned the injuries off the top and uh, how difficult this has been um, in terms of just managing minutes and managing players. Um, who's the one player that um, was given an opportunity by all this injury that really stood out to you and impressed you during this run because there were a lot of them? Yeah, I think the natural answer is Jonathan Osorio. Um, he just he was immense from every single leg. I think uh, he he led the tournament in scoring, and uh, he's definitely you can tell he's matured as a player. But for me, the player that I was most sort of surprised with or impressed with was Gregory Vanderveel, due to the fact that he was uh, deputized as a center back for 
the majority of the tournament. I thought that was an incredible um, showcase of his of his experience and quality. The fact that he was able to step into an uncomfortable or unfamiliar position and perform like he did, especially in the face of the weakest point of Toronto FC's sort of injury crisis hitting that spot, is incredible. Uh, he deserves a lot of praise, and I think that there's a lot of uh, thought that Greg Vanny has to give now as to how he wants to use Vanderbilt moving forward because he's been very impressive at right center back in that three back and the three man back line. So that's something that he has to really consider now. You talked about Osorio and the incredible tournament that he had. How important has this tournament and this experience been for players like Osorio and Chapman and Hamilton and um, even even an Ashton Morgan in terms of confidence? But these players who are getting these experiences of playing at um, world-class venues against teams that are incredibly competitive in the region and uh, different styles almost to what they'd face every week in MLS, almost out of their comfort zone in some ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, when you have a guy like Sebastian Jovinko, Josie Altidore, Michael Bradley, Victor Vasquez, when they come to a team like Toronto FC, they bring with them all of this experience already. And it was scary for them when they were the little guy in their own European clubs. So the fact that they bring that back is a valuable resource for young players to listen uh, and, and absorb, but it's nowhere near the kind of experience you get from actually playing in it and taking it on firsthand. That's the true value. I think what you'll end up seeing from this is uh, much more confidence, but in the assured sense. It's no longer about uh, being... It was never really about puffing your chest and saying, look how good I am. But I think for especially a guy like uh, Jonathan Osorio, right now he knows he has the quality to be a, a starting caliber MLS talent of the highest level. At this point, this is a guy who's going to be competing with like Darlington Nagby, Lee Wynn, like all the established MLS sort of creative number eights uh, for the best in the league at this point. And it's because of the fact that he stepped up and he put himself in the most uncomfortable scenario possible, which is being run ragged by some of the most uh, skillful technical players in the continent. That's something that you can't teach just from watching video or from talking to guys like Jovinko or Altador or whatever. That's something that you have to learn firsthand. And the fact that he has that experience now will make him a better player overall. It will also make him, I think, more assured when it comes to just taking on the daily grind of MLS. I mean, you don't have to be afraid of your peers anymore. If there was any hesitation in Osorio's game, I think it should be gone now. This is a guy who knows what he's about, and he can be much more confident in his play. So all of that, plus the fact that you know you get a huge cultural learning experience as well, I think this is only good for the young core, especially for a guy like Osorio. 2016 Toronto FC make it to the MLS Cup Final and lose. The next year, they come back and win it. I know Michael Bradley certainly is already probably formulating a plan to get the club back to this CONCACAF Champions League Final. Um, do you think that's a possibility for this team? I mean, it's it's going to be a tough run, obviously. We saw how brutal it was this year, but the Voyagers Cup seems like a pretty uh, easy tournament to win this year considering the form of the other MLS teams. So, or, yeah, at least the other MLS Canadian teams. So um, do you think that there's a possibility the team gets this far next year? Well, I think definitely the Voyagers Cup now will be much more hotly contested because now Toronto FC will turn this, just like they turned the MLS Cup, into an obsession. So they're going to go into the Voyagers Cup going, no, we actually have to really, really try to win this as opposed to take it game by game. Um, so that'll be really interesting to watch. I think they definitely can return to the final because I think that this path was unusually difficult for Toronto FC. 
most teams don't have to play the level of talent that Toronto FC played to get to the final. Most teams take Chivas' route where they play against uh, like a Red Bulls in a Seattle, you know? So I think the fact that Toronto FC managed to hit the hardest part of the bracket this year was a massive coincidence that I don't think will be repeated. That being said, if Toronto FC does win the Voyagers Cup and they do end up in the knockout, or if they do end up in those the midst of the knockout stages again, I definitely think that the challenges will be different. So um, perhaps we'll see an opportunity for Toronto FC to actually approach this without having to sacrifice so many players to injuries due to the fact that we might be drawn against like let's say New York City FC. Uh, it'll be easier to manage because I doubt that we'll end up playing Tigres, Club America, Pachuca, whoever. <laughs> so that'll be the that'll be that'll be a huge factor, I think. And the other thing is like this is all new for this Toronto FC team too. I mean, Toronto FC as a franchise has been in the Champions League before, but none of these players were here for it except like Ashton Morgan. So the fact that now they kind of have an idea of what it takes and they have learned their lessons on what they can do, what they can't do. Like I don't think Greg Vanny will play. Anybody um, of importance in the game right before any of these knockout games. That's how we lost Victor Vasquez to injury. So th- those are lessons that you learn. Um, I definitely think they can be back though, and I think that if they do return, they'll be in a much better state to win it. Just like MLS Cup, all these experiences are learning experiences. There's no rest for Toronto FC. However, they take on the Chicago Fire at 3 p.m. on the weekend. And speaking of no rest, you almost wonder. I mean, obviously, there there probably won't be any center backs again. Um, and there's been a lot of players on the Toronto roster who have picked up knocks throughout this run. And guys like Greg Vanderveel, who's been playing through tendonitis. Josie Altador, who had to come off hurt. Van, or Vasquez, rather, certainly. Uh, didn't look himself so you almost wonder and those are just the injuries we know about so you wonder if perhaps we're going to see some of these guys sit out because these games are um, less important at this point Um, are you concerned at all about Toronto getting back into MLS play um, in the next couple weeks well Toronto's not winning the supporter shield that's for sure I mean we can rule that one out but I don't think they need to I don't think they have it they don't have that thing to prove anymore um, is it possible that someone beats Toronto's points record or, or whatever? I don't, I don't know. It's too early to tell. But I don't think Toronto FC will be concerning itself too much with that. I think Vanny's probably targeting a playoff appearance, a playoff spot. Um, and then once you make it to the postseason, it's literally a, a question of quality and, and competitiveness. So I don't think that first in the East or first overall thing is too concerning for Toronto FC anymore. Though I will say that the... Injuries are something that I think should be managed. There's no need to push. Uh, this is a Toronto FC team that is assured in its ability now. And barring some sort of disaster, they should be in that playoff berth. So I think uh, take it slow, take it easy. I mean, pick your battles and uh, keep that bigger priority, that bigger picture in mind, which is let's just make playoffs and then make a run for the MLS Cup again. Um I don't think there's a better team than Toronto FC when it's all healthy and clicking. So that's that's the main priority, I think. I don't, I don't think they need to be too concerned. And before we leave Toronto FC, um, one of the stories that kind of... Uh, it would have been a bigger deal, obviously, if they weren't playing in the Champions League final is the Sebastian Jovinko contract situation. Now, he sat down with the Toronto Suns' Kurt Larson and talked about his contract, which expires at the end of next year. Uh, he wants to stay longer. He said he wants to live out the rest of his career in Toronto. 
Um, but Toronto FC management have been saying that this is not the right time to negotiate, which kind of makes sense considering uh, all the stuff they've had to deal with in the early part of this season. Uh, but he did have these quotes to say, which were interesting. Quote, I want to know my future. I have family. I'm 31 years old. For what I do for this city, I think I deserve it. No. And then perhaps more ominously, for them, it's not a problem. For me, it's starting to be a problem. I already said I want to start here or I want to stay here forever. If not, I think I have I have to think about other options. End quote. Um, so should Toronto FC fans be at all concerned about this, or is this something that you know Javinko is just kind of posturing for uh, a future contract here? Yeah, you have to look at it from both perspectives. Um, Jovinko has a huge, huge amount of of, uh, of power in this negotiation right now. He holds a lot of the cards because of the fact that he basically helped deliver... He was a huge part in delivering Toronto FC's incredible treble uh, and, and all the successes that came from last season. So there's a lot of... He, he has a lot of, I guess, negotiating power right now. For Toronto FC, obviously the timing of, of contract negotiations negotiations at this point is difficult uh, due to, as you said, all the things that have been going on in the early part of the season. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, world football, you hear about these kinds of... of, uh, You hear these kinds of comments and stuff where players will be like, well, I really want this resolved. Or other players will take the other option where they say, I don't want to talk about it till the end of the season. So these kind of uh, quotes to the media, they help. There's always an agenda behind it. I think that's what fans should keep in mind is that players are very aware of what they're saying and why they're saying it is sort of buried underneath. So I think Jovinko probably wants to get everything sorted uh, as soon as possible because um, potentially the more the season goes on, the more all of his exploits and triumphs from 2017 will fade a little bit into the background. Whereas Toronto FC wants to ensure that the contract talks are done in a way that most benefits the organization itself. So there's always a middle ground. They'll reach it. I don't think Jovinko is going to leave Toronto FC. I think at this point, they'll come to some figure that works for both of them and everything will be fine. But along the way, it's going to be a bit bumpy. So uh, strap in because it's going to be a fun ride. This is world soccer. I mean, this is <laughs> this is the best part of it. So Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair enough. The transfer news, uh, it never stops. And um, we've we've seen uh, you know a number of teams circling the wagons for Toronto FC's three best players before, but um, yeah, I don't think that Sebastian Giovinco will leave either. I think he's just found too much of a good thing here. Uh, speaking of Giovinco, his former club is featured in our game of the week, or at least my choice for the game of the week. I've chosen to go with the Derby d'Italia, uh, being Juventus against Inter Milan on Saturday. Um, this is the only big four league that really has a title race going on this season. Everything else has been basically wrapped up. So um, that's heated up in a big way after Napoli defeated Juventus 1-0 last week. They are now just one point behind the leaders. Um, And Juventus are having a bit of a tough run right now, obviously going out of the Champions League and then uh, a shocking away draw to Cortone uh, before that loss to Napoli. Um, And they lost at the San Siro last season to Inter. So potentially here i mean um you know we'll see but uh this is this is going to be dicey for them to get their seventh straight scudetto and this game's certainly going to feature in that huge armin do you have a pick for the game of the week oh it's got to be manchester united versus arsenal that's the that's the huge one in england right now 
with Arsene Wenger announcing that he's uh, stepping away from Arsenal after 22 years, all eyes are going to be on this match because of the fact that it's Manchester United, which is Arsenal's um, most heated rival, um, and the fact that it's uh, Jose Mourinho. So, <laughs> um, actually, I shouldn't say that. Tottenham is Arsenal's most heated rival, but like it's Tottenham. So, anyways, the point <laughs> being... Uh, it's going to be a huge game. It's going to be a lot of significance for Wenger. He'll definitely want to win it, and Mourinho will definitely want to spoil Wenger's goodbye party. So it's going to be a huge match. It uh, doesn't really have too many title implications anymore for obvious reasons. Uh, but that being said, Arsenal will want the win as they try to secure a European berth of some sort. So it should be fine. It should be fun. It should be a really interesting match to see both on the field and on the sidelines. So that's my pick. Speaking of Wenger, he is announcing that he will leave the club after 22 years, almost 22 years, um, with one year left on his contract at Arsenal. Uh, The timing, he says, was not his decision. Um, In terms of his career now, um, you almost want to quote that that cheesy line from Batman Dark Knight, uh, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Um, That's almost become true of anger recently, especially um, if you want to talk about Arsenal fans TV and that sort of things but now that he is leaving what's his legacy on the club and English football in general I think he's definitely leaving behind the legacy of a man who changed the Premier League that's for sure Uh, the Invincibles era Arsenal was an incredible team just one of the best teams in in club history so uh, and not just Arsenal club history just in terms of club football in general so the fact that he's now finally calling it quits I think is also the the last remnant of an old Premier League that no longer exists. Uh, we saw it with Sir Alex Ferguson when he stepped away, and now we're seeing it with Wenger as well, is this idea that a manager can be more than just a tactician or just a coach or just a, a sort of boss of a, of a locker room, that these, these managers can be more than that. They can be a figurehead for the club. They can have long, extended tenures, and they become entrenched with the club's operations that's going to be the hard part I think for Arsenal finding a new tactical decision maker won't be that difficult whether it's Luis Enrique or whoever they end up deciding finding that man won't be too hard and for a lot of Arsenal fans it's overdue but I think finding someone who can replace Wenger's just day-to-day presence his ability to organize the club as like from an infrastructural level that's going to be tough um and I think that's what his legacy will end up being, is man who's not just the coach of Arsenal, but he was Arsenal for two decades. That's something that you can never take away from him. Whether you want to say the trophy drought or the Premier League title never came uh, in the last like 10 years, 10, 15 years. So, I mean, he has his critics, and it's, there's a point to them. There's, you can't take anything away from that. But in the end of the day... Wenger was Arsenal, and that's a beautiful thing. You don't see enough of that in football anymore. Arsenal, they drew 1-1 at home today against a 10-man Atletico um, in the Europa League. Um, If Arsene can win this trophy, it would be his first European trophy. How much does that maybe affect his legacy? Is, you know, how much stock people put in what teams can do continentally um, and the fact that he never seemed to be able to figure that side of club football out? Yeah, I mean, definitely there were opportunities for Arsenal. That final against Barcelona will always be one of Wenger's biggest missed chances. 
But uh, the fact that he has a chance now to end on a really, really positive high uh, and to do it in a, in, in a way where not only, will he, not only would he leave with a massive trophy, but he would also leave having played in Lyon, which is the host for the final. And that's the, the major city closest to where Wenger is actually born and raised. So that will be, I think, a huge uh, sort of homecoming again and a, a perfect venue for a goodbye. Uh, and I think that that's one of those things where Wenger, I think, deserves a reward for all of his work, for all of his unrewarded work. A Europa League title would be perfect for Arsenal. They're definitely favorites for it. The 1-1 draw, probably not an ideal first leg, but the, I think they'll be fine overall. And... I think that the players are obviously playing for their manager, so I, I definitely see Arsenal doing big things in the Europa League. Continuing with our theme of, of life and death, um, Wenger has been quoted as saying, retirement is dying. Um, do you think uh, he will take another job, and where would you like to see him go? Yeah, I, I love the other quote where he said, he's like, I've been playing Russian roulette for the last like 20 years, uh, and now I don't have a gun in my hand. Something like that, <laughs> which I think was beautiful. Um, I think I think so. I don't think Wenger is the kind of person to retire and, and go to a beach somewhere and see off the rest of his days. I mean, he's given a lot to football. There's a lot to Wenger that a lot of fans forget about him. This is a man who uh, went through a divorce because of partially because of his commitment to football. This is a man who who gave his entire um, like 40s, 50s, 60s, and almost his entire 70s to football. Uh, that's a long time. You and and the other thing is, he's a deep thinker of the game. He's not just one of those rah rah motivate your player kind of coaches. This is a guy who's been working on things. He's got ideas. He's got this vision that he's trying to execute at Arsenal. And I almost wonder, like, perhaps he's lost sort of sight of what he can and can't implement because of how entrenched he has become at Arsenal. That maybe taking on a new job somewhere else will allow him to explore ideas that he just physically could not at Arsenal due to the availability of players and, and the, the kinds of players that he has. I've heard him being linked to the Paris Saint-Germain job. That would be super interesting mm. if he wants another high-level job. But I would also love to see Wenger take over at maybe a smaller French club or a smaller club somewhere and see if he can try to motivate some sort of title charge or title challenge. It'd be definitely interesting to see what Wenger can do with a different crop of players, for sure. Just to see if he still has that tactical acumen, or if the suspicion that he's kind of a relic of the past is unfortunately true. But I definitely do think that he'll take something else. There's been no shortage of people tapped to be his replacement. Who do you think makes the most sense, considering you know all the challenges that come specifically with this Arsenal team and um, what, what they've been left with? I think Jose Mourinho probably would be the best. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, Luis Enrique is an interesting option. I definitely think he'd be an interesting person. But um, the other name that I that I uh, heard that kind of intrigued me was Massimiliano Allegri. Mm. He's currently the head coach of Juventus, and he's a guy who would bring in a lot of discipline. He's a very different sort of manager than Wenger is, and maybe that's what Arsenal needs. I'd be very curious to see what a, what Allegri would do at Arsenal, especially considering that Arsenal's philosophy has always been to sort of be a free-flowing, connective uh, attacking side, which is also part of Allegri's tactical acumen. But he stresses a very um, like firm and solid defensive line as well. 
that would definitely be something that Arsenal could prioritize. And if Allegri comes in and is given a transfer purse to purchase a couple defenders, that would definitely be something that I think would benefit Arsenal overall. So he's an interesting name. Luis Enrique would be an interesting name. I think Thomas Tuchel is probably lining up for the PSG job, but he would also be an interesting character. Um, there's no shortage of options, uh, but I think the one thing that they definitely need is someone who can bring in a little bit of a of a heightened workload and expectation in that regard. Uh, Wenger is a manager who's very kind to his players, who defends his players, and maybe Arsenal needs something a little different. They need something a little more demanding. So that's the only thing that I think would really make sense for this team. Let's move on now to the Champions League and no shortage of intrigue there, especially in the first game that was played, that being Liverpool's 5-2 win over Roma. And I mean, no story has been bigger, it seems, in this year's Champions League than that Liverpool attack kind of helps when you're matched up against a back three, especially when you're a front three. Um, It seemed like a huge mistake, but, you know, Talking about this Liverpool attack, you know, they have the most goals of any Premier League side in a single Champions League. They now have 38, and they've scored five goals against seven different opponents during this campaign. Um, How incredible has this Liverpool attack been, and how big was it once again against Roma? See, I have this theory. I'm going to kind of go a little off track, but I have this theory that certain players are destined for something more. Um, You see it time and time again where a player will have two, three, four years in the spotlight, but they don't really ever perform to the best of their abilities or whatever that may be. And then all of a sudden they have this breakout year. Uh, Mohamed Salah is just the latest example of this type of phenomena. I almost wonder if if there's some cosmic force that they meet and then <laughs> they're like, all right, what's your wish? Well, I'd like to be the world's greatest soccer player. All right, wish granted. And then the next day they show up to training and they're just amazing. It's That's how quick it seems to be. Uh, when Salah was playing for Chelsea, I mean, he wasn't bad, but he wasn't this. He certainly wasn't this. And then when he went to Roma, he was better, but again, he wasn't this. Um, so I don't know who this player is. I don't know where he came from, but I love that. I love him, and I, I think Liverpool fans uh, owe Salah the world. But it's not just him. That front three, and I say three because Coutinho's gone, and somehow they became better with just three. <laughs> is unbelievable. I mean, it's it's an unbelievable front three. Uh, Firmino and Sadio Mane have somehow created this like synergist three-man attacking triumvirate that has steamrolled all of Europe, and I'm almost curious to see, I really hope it's uh, Real Madrid who makes the final, because I'm curious to see what they can do against a team like Real Madrid. Um, I mean, like, it, it's... Credit to Jurgen Klopp for actually getting them to play that kind of football where they press high in the attack and they're constantly putting pressure on. That definitely suits their style of play. The only concern I really have with Liverpool is like their ability to defend uh, over the course of two legs. Um, so we'll see what the next leg is like. Uh, hopefully, um, hopefully Roma makes things interesting, but I definitely would like to see Liverpool advance. Uh, that being said, yeah, like you said, man, it's one of the most potent attacks in, in Europe right now. And uh, I just want to see how much more there is in this. And, I mean, just that moment where Salah, the the ball just sits up for him and he just picks his spot in the top corner. From that very second, you almost knew that Roma was in big trouble and that this was going to be just another one of those games where everything Salah touched turns to gold. That's been almost every game so far this season. 
Um, and, you know, when talking about another bit of gold, the gold trophy, Ballon d'Or, um, it's been dominated, of course, by Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. They've been 1-2 for the past 10 years, barring that one year uh, Iniesta uh, came second. Now that Salah's put up all of what he's done so far this season, do you think he's in that conversation? And what does he have to do to win it? Because he can't be all that far off. Yeah, he's definitely in the conversation. Uh, and you know what? The the Ballon d'Or is a strange trophy. So he'll be in the conversation for it. He definitely has the individual merits to deserve being talked about. But the Ballon d'Or is always sort of the capping off of a successful individual season, which includes the, accu- the accumulation of trophies and silverware. Uh, if Liverpool wins the Champions League and defeats Real Madrid doing so, Mohamed Salah is the next Ballon d'Or winner. That, there's no doubt about that. Uh, if Real Madrid wins the Ballon d'Or, then I think Ronaldo's start of season might detract from him a little bit. But I doubt that the dichotomy between him and Messi will be broken yet. Um, and then the other thing that we have to keep in mind for this Ballon d'Or in particular is that it's a World Cup year. And the World Cup, uh, though it is sort of a one-off tournament that exists separate from the rest of the world of football... Uh, which is why, for some reason, Sammy Kadira plays like an, a genius during World Cup and then looks <laughs> awful for the next four years. Um, but yeah, because it's sort of separate from the rest of like traditional football, the players who perform exceptionally well in the World Cup will always get a boost in that reputation. So if Ronaldo has a really decent World Cup or if Messi has a really solid World Cup as well, then that will kind of lend credence to them winning it again. But if Salah gets out of his group, I mean, like Egypt is not expected to... Uh, perform too well but I think they are expected to leave their group if he can perform well in the World Cup and perform well in the Champions League and hopefully win the Champions League with Liverpool um, then there's a chance I mean there's a definite chance for him but he'll be in the conversation but it'll be very difficult to to pry it away from Ronaldo or Messi just yet yeah, as you said, that group in the World Cup gives him a bit of hope. I think at this point, you you can't bet against Egypt to get out of it. But then um, the problem is, of course, Egypt isn't the deepest team. And um, once they do get into those knockout rounds, you, you wouldn't really bet for them. Um, but yeah. let's talk about Roma just quickly, um, because they have been in this position before, evidently, uh, in the quarterfinals coming back on Barcelona. But... Uh, I see. I see this as completely different. Obviously, obviously, you never bet a team to come back three goals down, but you just wouldn't bet against Liverpool scoring a couple. And that's the problem here is that they've put themselves in this in this position again, and it's not against a team like Barcelona. It's against a Liverpool team that isn't going to back down, and they're not going to stop attacking you. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't think Roma will. It will be out of question that Roma scores three goals. I just I question whether that will even be enough. Um, definitely Roma's path to that final is significantly helped from having scored twice in the first leg. If they lost 5 nothing, it would be game over, but the, they sort of clawed their way back into the realm of hope. That being said, I, I don't think that they'll do even enough to overturn the aggregate as it is right now. If Roma wins, I don't think it'll be by three, and certainly not enough to keep a clean sheet as well. It's possible. I mean, anything is possible in football, but I think Liverpool is fairly assured at this point that they'll be through. I don't think Roma has a real chance of of a final appearance. And the heavyweight battle in this uh, Champions League semi-final, that being Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. Uh, Real came out 2-1 winners uh, at the Allianz Arena, but poor Bayern, honestly, they had all kinds of chances. The expected goals battle was 
2.5 to 0.7 um, injuries to Boateng, obviously Robin and uh, Javier Martinez. So, you know, tough stuff for them there. But once again, um, they had all these chances and they couldn't find the back of the net. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they'll be ruining that. That's for sure. Uh, Real Madrid didn't look particularly great. I mean, not enough to say that they were the clear uh, deserved winner of that match. But that being said, I mean, it's Real Madrid. They they're just such a European dominant. Like they're just, they just dominate in Europe for some reason. It, their league form has been so poor that you would assume that like a team like Bayern, who's had their league wrapped up for as long as they have, would be able to put up a much much more comprehensive showing. But for some reason, Zidane's side, when it comes to European competition, they just can't be beaten. So uh, I definitely think that Bayern is still in it, and it'll be an interesting second leg, that's for sure. Uh, if Real Madrid plays the way that they did, I think that the advantage will eventually fall Bayern's way. I mean, it's, it seems to be a floodgate situation at some point. But as you mentioned, those injuries, if they are extended longer than, than uh, anticipated, those could be costly. Uh, and that being said, Real Madrid is one of those teams that will take advantage of every weakness that you have. So it'll take a full effort, but I think Bayern is one of those teams that has enough depth across the board that they'll be able to compete, if not actually be able to turn it around. This is going to be, like you said, a heavyweight battle, but uh, it'll definitely be an interesting one to watch. You touched on this as well, but another huge performance for Real in the Champions League and another huge performance away, or another huge result at least, away. Um, They had dominant nights in Turin and Paris as well during this competition. Uh, What is it about this team? Is it just the mentality that they're the best in the world and um, that it doesn't matter where they're going to play, they're the favorite? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I definitely think the other thing is that Real Madrid bears the weight of history well. They're one of those clubs that doesn't fold under the weight of their own expectations the way other teams do. I think it's just a a product of being Real Madrid and knowing what that crest symbolizes and and knowing the level of dominance that's expected of you. The other huge X factor is like Real Madrid from top to bottom is filled with quality players. And unlike Barcelona, which sort of relies on a system that gets the best out of its players, Real Madrid can perform in a very fluid way there's no one set in stone formation that Zidane turns to he'll use the 4-4-2 flat he'll do 4-2-3-1 if he has to he'll do 4-4 like he'll do uh, 4-3-3 if he has to there's multiple different ways that he lines up this Real Madrid team and it seems like all of it works and all of it works well that's definitely something that opposition managers will have a really hard time dealing with no matter what their teams look like so the fact that they have this kind of versatility to them, this sheer ability to overcome, makes them such a formidable team. And the other thing about Real Madrid that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is, defensively, they're a very solid team. I mean, Marcelo bombards down that left wing and there's always space to exploit, but the fact that Real Madrid is capable of attacking the way they do and still able to track back the way they do is an incredible testament to the quality of their players. That's something that doesn't get enough credit, I think. The fact that Real Madrid is a defensively solid team. Now, not so much in La Liga this season, but in the Champions League, they're a solid, solid side. And heading into next week's second leg, before we move on, um, Liverpool are now actually the favorites to win the entire Champions League, according to Stats website 538. 
They're 40%, uh, which is one percentage point better than Real Madrid. Do you agree with what the numbers are telling us? Because, I mean, really, like I said, off the top of this segment, they haven't met their match yet, but uh, their match definitely could be waiting in either of the two teams that could get out of the other semifinal, considering their European pedigree. Um, who, who is the favorite at this point? I think it's Real Madrid. I don't think Liverpool are the favorites. I think statistically they have the best chance of winning a single game. So if it's Liverpool versus Real Madrid over 10 games, uh, they might have the slight edge just because of the sheer amount of goals they can score. But I think that the weight of a final relative to Liverpool's experience compared to Real Madrid's experience in the tournament is an intangible that really, I think, heavily favors Zidane's team. Uh, Real Madrid have been in the final countless times. In, in uh, The last two have been won by Real Madrid too. Mm. So the fact that Liverpool hasn't been here in a while, certainly haven't been here under this current Liverpool team with this current manager in Jurgen Klopp, that will definitely be a factor. Uh, and I, the other thing is, Liverpool's back line is suspect. That's They compensate for it by scoring in abundance. But... When you have the sort of backline that Liverpool has assembled, there are weaknesses. There are weaknesses that Real Madrid can exploit and Bayern Munich can exploit. So I don't think that in either circumstance, Liverpool goes into it as anything other than the very ambitious and um, very threatening underdogs. Before we finish up, uh, let's talk about another semifinal, that being the Turkish Cup semifinal in our crazy soccer story of the week. Um, most of it had already been played that between Fenerbahce and Besiktas, um, but the match was abandoned after Besiktas manager Shino Gunish was uh, struck in the head by an object thrown on the field. He received five stitches for that. So um, definitely we've talked on this podcast before about how nasty the rivalries in Turkey can get. And this was certainly an example of that. And um, so the Turkish, uh, the Turkish FA, they rule that this game is um, instead of a replaying the match completely, they were, they're just going to start it again from the 57th minute. Uh, the game was nil-nil, and Pepe had been sent off. <laughs> Huge surprise there. Um, <laughs> and uh, But Besiktas, they say they aren't going to, to play this. They, they don't want this again. So, uh, you know, Armin obviously was going to be behind closed doors, but um, a bit of a weird situation. I mean, even going into a 32-minute game um, in terms of preparation would be super weird. Do you think this is the right decision for them? And, um, you know, how you know it's just, just such a bizarre situation for sure. Yeah, this is a very, very strange and unique circumstance. Uh, I understand Besiktas's position, which is the fact that they're the aggrieved party, so they feel as though potentially that they shouldn't be forced to play, that they should be awarded the result due to the fact that the match was abandoned because of the opposition. Um, oh, sorry, I should say the opposition fans. Um, that being said, it's also a strange circumstance in that you shouldn't really be made to prepare for a half-hour match <laughs> either. I think the match should have just been replayed. I think if that was the resolution that was brought to the table, that maybe Basiktas and Fenerbahce could have said, okay, let's just play it again and the deserving party will go through. And I think under most normal circumstances, that would have been the resolution. It would have just been a replay. Uh, but the fact that it's these two teams and they have literally split the city of Istanbul in half, such as the level of hatred between these two rivals, means that there will not 
be a simple solution to this. So it requires a sort of strange circumstance, like a half-hour match or a 32-minute match. Uh, personally, I wouldn't play it. If I was Besiktas, I'd be like, no, I'm not playing this. If I'm Fenerbahce, though, I'd probably be pushing for it because uh, it's very, very uh, circumstantial and it's also very, very positive for them. All they need is one goal and, and holding it for like 20 minutes or whatever it might be. So it's it's a weird circumstance and it's the only thing I can really think about. The There's no precedent for it. There's very little precedent for it. I mean, we've seen it sometimes with Toronto FC, for example, where a rain delay will postpone a game at halftime and so they only play one half. I remember there was a circumstance like that a couple of years ago. But even then, that was super strange and I would have rather just replayed the game. So it's... It'll be interesting to see what happens, that's for sure. And uh, it'll be interesting to see who advances in this because definitely no one... Whoever advances the opposite party will be completely upset with the result. It, there's no happy like story ending to this. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's uh, ever you know a, a full resolution in that league for sure. And a, as you mentioned, Besiktas, uh, it, it's 2-2 um, on aggregate and they're behind on away goals. So they will want as much time as possible uh, yeah, to absolutely. get back into the match. So um, yeah, definitely an interesting one to watch and we'll definitely um, update you on what happens there in the next week. Um, but this brings us to the end of the show. Um, Armin, really appreciate you doing this. Um, anything you've been working on at the score lately that you think the listeners should check out? Yeah, we're gearing up for our World Cup coverage at the score. So we'll be, ha- we'll be publishing team previews and, and uh, statistical analysis, uh, introductory features for people who are just being reacquainted with the beautiful game and everything in between. So uh, that's going to be the really fun stuff. And, of course, we're also gearing up for the Champions League semifinal, second legs, the Champions League final, um, Toronto FC sort of returning back to being an MLS team. So <laughs> there's a lot of exciting things in the world of soccer, and, and definitely check it out. And something else, of of course, to check out um, for P- Footy Talks podcast listeners is the Footy Talks live event that is taking place next Thursday at the Rivoli. Uh, three panels of guests have been announced at Toronto FC and Canadian Soccer panel with names like Josh Cloak and uh, John Molinaro. A Footy Show podcast panel with James Sharman, Thomas Dobby, and Brendan Dunlop. And then the TSN Soccer panel. Uh, tickets are available at homestandsports.ca and across our social platforms so make sure to look out for those in the next few days and i look forward to seeing all of you there have a good week everyone